Um, The first reading is actually from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer from Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall, be you, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The second reading is from Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It wasn't after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of all the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes By faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only to those who are of the law but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God 
in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Good morning, my name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. A number of um, years ago I got sat down by a bishop along with another minister and this bishop, he said to us, why should we regard you as Anglican? That was a bit of a strange question. Uh, Actually, he wasn't really asking a question, he was making a statement. He was saying, I don't think your church is Anglican. Now, for some of you here, that's a huge relief to hear that. Straight from the mouth of a bishop. He doesn't think we're very Anglican. Phew. But for others here, that's, that, we find that a bit irritating. Offensive even. It all comes down to what you think is a, a true Anglican, doesn't it? Some people think a true Anglican is all about having the prayer book and the robes and the rituals and the structures of the Anglican church. But other people think those things aren't actually at the heart of being an Anglican at all. Those things don't go anywhere near deep enough. I would say being a true Anglican, it's got to have something to do with how you handle the Bible, the Word of God, and the Gospel, the message of God's grace. But others would say it's got very little to do with that, and it's got everything to do with how you handle the prayer book and the Eucharist, communion. Now, on the surface of the things, uh, the surface of things, as you know, the bishop was there talking to us while we were sitting in that cafe, me and that other minister. We didn't look or sound especially Anglican. We weren't wearing a clergy collar. We didn't have a big gold chain necklace around our necks like he did. And church here, maybe on the surface, it it doesn't look and sound particularly like an Anglican church compared to what some people might expect. But the reality is. If a church is wandering from the Bible as containing all things necessary to salvation, if a church is wandering from the gospel that only by the name of Jesus Christ people must be saved, they can wear all the robes they like, use the prayer book all they like, perform rituals all they like, but they've killed the very heart of what it means to be an Anglican. Now, how can I say this so confidently? Well, it's because I know our roots. I know where we've come from. 
I um, myself, I wasn't an Anglican until in my late 20s. I became an Anglican because I saw the way this movement began and I saw the way this movement continues on for some of us. Do you know the stories of the first Anglicans? Now, if you know a bit of history, uh, for many of us, our minds probably go straight to Henry VIII, that brood of a king who wanted to break away from the Catholic Church only so that he could divorce his wife and marry someone else. But that's not our roots. Henry was not the founder of the Anglican Church. His selfishness just opened the door for other people to start a movement that made a difference in the world for the better. The roots of the Anglican Church were the ministers who were driven to return to the Bible. They were inspired by Luther's return to the Bible and to the gospel of grace in Germany. And then they were inspired by Calvin's return in Geneva. And then they risked everything to take the English church away from ceremonies that were empty, away from prayer books that were empty, to return them to the Bible and to the gospel of grace. That is absolutely what drove everything they did. That was the heart of of the movement they were on about. And eventually that was what led many of them to pay an enormous price for their devotion to the movement. The Anglican Church was born in ministers being burnt alive for rejecting empty rituals and returning to the Bible and to grace. You know, Hugh Latimer, he turned to Thomas Ridley as they were both about to be burned alive and he said to him, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Even in their deaths, they were driven by the desire to return the church to the Bible and to God's grace. And so when people today who love the rituals and the robes, but who are turning away from the Bible, when they want to tell me I'm not a true Anglican, I'm sorry, but when you look at our roots, you tell me, who are the true Anglicans? And who are those who are trying to extinguish the candle that was lit at our beginning? Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because in this letter to the Romans that we've been looking at, Paul turns to to address a very similar kind of objection to what I've just been talking about. He's just made it absolutely clear that, that all people can only be right with God, not through the Jewish law, but only through faith in Jesus. We saw this so clearly in chapter 3 last week. And Paul knows that for some people, they'll make this accusation. They'll say, but hang on a minute, Paul. If you're saying that we're made right with God through faith, then you're not giving the law and the rituals and the rules and the structures, you're not giving them enough prominence. Paul knows the accusation is out there. He knows that's what people are saying. They're saying, you guys are not the true people of God. Because the true people of God will be on about the law. We actually hear this accusation in the last verse of of chapter 3 last week. In verse 31, Paul writes, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? And so at this point, Paul turns to, to address this accusation. And he gives the answer in a nutshell in verse 31. He writes, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. 
And then in chapter 4, he gives the more detailed answer. And where does he go to answer the accusation? Where does he go to answer the accusation that we're not the true people of God? Well, he goes to their roots. He goes back to the beginning, to the very origin of the people of God. He goes back to Abraham. Look again at what he says in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? And this this is our first point. This brings us to our first point. What Abraham discovered is that righteousness is through faith. This is what we saw last week. This is what we'll keep seeing each week. But importantly, this is exactly what Abraham himself saw way back at the beginning. We're made right with God only by having faith in him. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a pretty powerful origin story right there. Abraham didn't rack up credit with God. He didn't impress God so much that God was like, oh, Abraham, what a man. He's earned my respect. In fact, I owe this guy. That's not how it went. Paul reminds them that that was not their roots. Did you see their roots as it was read before? Abraham is chosen by God, not because he's anything wonderful. He's actually an old, weak, frail man. But he's told by God that he's going to have a son, even though he's ancient. And from him will come a nation who will bless all the peoples of the earth. And it's not like he deserved that promise. He was just an ordinary man. And even his character, when you look closely, is pretty ordinary. He doubts in that Genesis reading before. He even sounds disappointed with God. And so God takes him outside and he shows him the stars and he says, count them if you can. And he repeats the promise yet again. He's going to have more descendants shining in the world than stars shining in the sky. And Abraham believes God. He trusts him. And make no mistake, that that really is inspiring faith that he has. It's, It's strange that this old man and his wife are told that they're going to have a baby. It's kind of weird stuff. People must have thought that Abraham was pretty nuts to believe this. But his belief... Even though, it, even though it's wavering to start with, it becomes unwavering. And that really is a great thing. But get this, even still, it doesn't make Abraham worthy of friendship with God. It doesn't make Abraham worthy of the promise. Paul said in verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But the point is, Abraham doesn't have something to boast about because faith doesn't work that way. The way that faith works is actually the greater your faith, the more you see that you've got nothing to boast about. Let me see if I can explain this because I reckon we get tripped up by this. I reckon we can read this chapter and accidentally somehow end up thinking that this part of the Bible is saying that God accepted Abraham because he was so great. So let me see if I can explain Imagine you're in, in the city, right? You're in Rundle Street Mall. And you, you get there and you find that the, ball, the mall's all blocked off. There's police tape everywhere. But it's that time of day where you're desperate for a coffee. You really need one. I can kind of see that look on a few faces right now. 
And so you, you can't see anything happening in the mall. So you think, look, what's it going to hurt? I'll just duck under the tape. There's a cafe over there. I'll see if it's just business as usual. And so you slip in only to discover it's not business as usual. It's a hostage situation. And you're probably not going to be getting your latte anytime soon. In fact, now you're one of the hostages. And things are bad, so bad that the, the SAS is called in. And eventually they burst into the cafe And an SAS officer, he runs up to you as there are bullets going everywhere and smoke. And he says to you, put your arms around my waist, hold on and stay behind me. And you're scared, but you listen. You you trust him. You do what he says. And he picks the right moment with his gun blazing through the smoke. He runs out of that cafe. He gets you to the other side of the police tape and then runs back in there. Now, if if the media got to you at that point, you know, before the paramedics could check you over, if the media got to you and they said to you, how did you get out? Could you imagine saying, oh, wow, wow, you should have seen me. I was amazing. And they're like, really? Oh, yeah. Could you imagine saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, You should have seen how tightly I held on to that soldier. He was like, man, you must work out. You should have seen how fast I bolted. You should have seen how I listened to his instructions and and trusted in him. I had complete faith as I was cowering behind him. Complete faith. I was amazing. It's no wonder he chose me over all those other people in there. Now, no one's going to do that, right? It's, It's ridiculous. No one is going to boast about cowering behind someone else. If they boast, what will they boast about? Their saviour what their saviour has done for them, and the greater their faith in him, all it means is the more clearly they'll see how great is their saviour. Faith is not an amazing achievement. It can be amazing, but it's not an amazing achievement. Faith is recognising how amazing God is. Faith is recognising how much we need him and how much we can trust him. And Abraham, he discovered that when he trusted God with, with that kind of faith, well, God credited it, credited it to him as righteousness, not as a payment for something that he'd done, but as a gift. Paul says to us here, Abraham got it. And he says to us, he really got it. And Paul goes on to say, David got it too. Look, look at verse 6. Paul writes, David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It's really clear. If they go back to their roots, they'll absolutely find right from the beginning and all along, the way to be right with God was was not by earning it, but by God giving it to you as a gift. God not counting sins against us, but instead God counting his righteousness against us simply because of our faith. Okay, so so that's what their roots show abundantly. But how does the law fit into that? that? That's the next kind of issue. Surely the law must have more of a central place in making us right with God. There's so much in the Old Testament about the law, right? 
It's so dominated their lives and their thinking. Surely God must require us to keep his commands in order to be right with him or at least to stay right with him. Maybe it's just the case that people like Abraham, people like David, they're special, they're different. But the rest of us plebs, surely we need the law to be righteous. And even more so if we're Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people not descended from Abraham, surely we particularly need the law to whip us into shape, to mould us into something that God could find acceptable. Well, this is the kind of thinking that Paul addresses next. Look at verse 9. He says, Is this blessedness, the blessedness of, of not having your sins counted against you, but instead having God's righteousness counted against you, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it only Jews who are made right with God or is it Gentiles too? And this brings us to our next point. Paul says righteousness is through faith for us all. And again, Paul goes back to their roots to answer this question. Look look at verse 9. He writes, We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Who exactly was Abraham when God promised that he'd inherit the world? You know, was he more like a Jew or more like a Gentile? He was more like a Gentile. This is so simple, but it's so mind-blowing. Abraham was made right with God when he was more like a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised. And so Paul points out the obvious, but what's easy to miss, that, that this means that Abraham is the model for all of us. Look at verse 11. So then, he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What matters? Not circumcision. Not any ritual, rule or special kind of requirement. What matters for all of us is faith in God. Abraham is the model to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, do you see what Paul is doing here in this chapter? He's pointing out what God is doing. What God has been doing all along. This idea that through the law we could become worthy of God's promise. Or this idea that through our efforts, we could be worthy to be a part of God's kingdom. That idea is not from God. It's not right. And it's not what our roots show either. Notice that that God promises Abraham the world in verse 13. He promised he will be heir of the world. He's not promised the world because he deserves it. It's not because he earned it. God's plan was to give him that promise by making him righteous through faith as a gift. And Paul's point here is that their roots show that this is the way God always works. And do you see what that means? Who are the true people of God? They're the ones who look at the work of God, hear the promises of God, see the faithfulness of God, And our hearts simply respond in faith in him. 
God's promise, it couldn't come through the law because it can't come through the law, Paul says. Because if it did, it'd be an empty promise. Look at verse 14. If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. The law can only show you what God should count against you. Sin and death. Our efforts, they can't be the gateway to the promises of God because our efforts will never get us there. And so in in verse 16, Paul writes, Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Now again, do you see the significance of this? This isn't something new. From the very beginning, God wanted what God wanted from his people. What he still wants from you is faith. So that he can give you the world. So that it's guaranteed to you because it's not dependent on your effort, but it's dependent on his grace. And don't you reckon, doesn't your heart just say, thank God for that? Because even our best efforts, they're stingy in the end. But God's grace, it's ridiculous. It's lavish. It's excessive. It's no wonder that our place is guaranteed when it's dependent on him. And this brings us to our final point. We can be sure. We can be unwaveringly sure that righteousness is through faith. Do you notice there at the end, Paul retells uh, Abraham's story. He says in verse 18, against all hope, Abraham believed and so became the father of many nations. And then in verse 19, he says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and and that Sarah's womb was also dead. It's almost this laughable situation. But Paul says in verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And you know what? Paul's not writing all this this story to, to beat us up for not having enough faith. That's not it at all. He writes it to show that we can actually share Abraham's unwavering faith. Look at what he says in verse 23. The words it was credited to him when written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead. Don't you reckon it must have felt like torture at time, times for Abraham and Sarah, waiting for a baby? It must have felt like some kind of cosmic joke at times. And one of those times, Sarah overhears God giving the promise to Abraham and she laughs in the tent, laughs bitterly. But eventually she held her own baby in her arms. She saw God start to deliver on his promise. And do you remember what they called the baby? Isaac. Laughter. She saw God turn bitterness into joy. It was pretty hard for them to believe, but their faith was not disappointed. And here's the thing. It was never going to be disappointed. Never. Now, we are promised an awful lot by God. 
We're promised to be a part of a kingdom that we can't even see right now. We're promised that our, our bodies will be raised from the dead, which is mind-blowing. Can't even get our heads around. Bodies restored, free from sickness, free from sin, never to die again. And we know we've got good reasons to believe, strong reasons. We've seen God's plan in Jesus. We've seen God's faithfulness in his own son dying for us. We've seen God's power in in Jesus rising from the dead ahead of us. We've seen these things even better than Abraham saw them. But it still doesn't make unwavering faith easy, does it? There are lots of things that could make us waver in our faith. Sometimes our world laughs at us. Do we really believe we'll be raised from the dead? Is that like zombies or sort of sci-fi style? Do we really believe that still after all these years of waiting for Jesus? Do we really believe that he'll return? After all the advances we've made over death with science, do we really believe Jesus is the answer? Is our faith unwavering or just unthinking? Or they don't laugh, they label. They label us as haters, as destructive. Do we really believe that we've got the right to call people to repent? To call people to put their faith in an absent God? To deny themselves? To give up so much like sex before marriage, sexual identity, a gender identity? Or to give up life experience all because of faith in an invisible God? And we start to wonder, do they have a point? I have the promises of God, but where's the result? Where's the impact? How long do I have to wait and wait to see? How long before I should waver? And then there are the kind of intensely personal waves that break against our faith. Like when we have one of those years where someone dies and someone else gets cancer, a relationship breaks down and you lose your job. And it all combines so that we have moments where we ourselves feel like, God, are you trying to torture me? How long do you plan to let this go on? How long before I actually feel your faithfulness? And then finally, there's those extremely personal things that make us waver in our faith. We think, I can see God's promise of righteousness through faith. I can see that it's beautiful. But what I can't see is that it's for me. I just can't see how he would ever promise it to me. What am I? Who am I? I don't even love myself. I've failed. I've done unthinkable things that the thought of someone else knowing makes me feel sick. And all of this while I claim to know him. And I'm to believe that God would want me. That he would actually treat me and relate to me as righteous in his eyes. There are lots and lots of things that could make us waver in our faith. But you know what? Unwavering faith has never been easy. That's also what our, the roots, our roots show, the stories that we know. It wasn't easy for Abraham. It wasn't easy for David or anyone in the Bible Unwavering faith will never be easy, but it will also never be disappointed. Never. That's God's promise. It's what Jesus' death and 
and resurrection so powerfully show. But I, I know many of you guys well, and I know that for many of you here, you really do struggle to accept that God accepts you. You feel like God's kind of like a passive-aggressive boss, you know, sitting you down, saying to you, look, I wish you would actually earn your keep here. I wish you would actually try to be worthy of my kingdom. But I need to be realistic. You and I both know that's never going to happen. So here's the deal. Just do what you can, even though it's not going to be good enough, and I'll take care of the rest. Honestly, that's how I... We sometimes imagine God is when his heart is so different. God gently takes doubters outside. He leads repeat offenders out under the night sky. He patiently, kindly gives them the promise yet again. He says, I've got this. I'm going to do this. You can't earn your keep. I want to provide for you. I don't care what the world says. I don't care that they're laughing. My kingdom's coming. Just trust me. That's all I want. And when our hearts flicker with faith, when we dare to think, wow, God can do this. God will do this. When we look at God with those eyes that say, okay, God, if you want me, it's strange. Other people might not get it. But I trust you. That's what God loves. Eyes of faith, seeing the promise and trusting him. That's what he loves. And that's what he credits to you freely as righteousness. Abraham saw that and he held on to it unwaveringly. David saw it and he held on to it. Those first Anglicans that I talked about at the beginning, that they saw it and they held on to it. What about you? Do you see it? Are you going to hold on to that? Let me pray. Father, we don't understand you, your heart, your power, your passion for us. Lord, that you see us, you see every aspect of us. You see that we can never be worthy in ourselves. And yet, Lord, when we trust your promise, you love us. You love that trust and you credit it, credit to us your righteousness. You treat us as righteous, never ever to face your judgment, never to face your anger, but always to know your love as your very children. Father, help us to see this is who you have always been. It's always been your plan and it still is for each one of us. And Lord, when we struggle to see how you can accept us, help us to see again what Jesus has done for us and to believe again your promise to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.